Welcome back to the South Harbor Church Podcast. South Harbor is a part of the Harbor Churches, which exist to help people find their way back to God. This week, Pastor Tim has returned from his trip to Israel, and he brings us a message from the story of Jesus and his relationship with John the Baptist, where it seems like things are not going to turn out the way everyone had hoped. As always, for more information about how you can become a part of the South Harbor Church community, stick around after the message. And now, let's head over to Pastor Tim. If you have a Bible, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 11. Matthew 11. Um, if you're new with us, uh, over the last six months or so, we have been journeying um, through the life of Jesus uh, as told by Jesus' least likely disciple, uh, a tax collector named Matthew. And by the way, at this rate, we will be done right around the time I hit retirement age. So it's, uh, <laughs> we're, we're crawling, but it's, it's been good. Um, now, uh, we haven't actually been in Matthew for a few weeks, right? Like this is, we, we hit pause for a bit. Um, a group of 47 of us, I see you floating around here. Uh, we were in Israel last, uh, well, we got back um, kind of late last week, um, but uh, we were there for 12 days and had some incredible stories. I'm sure you'll hear a lot of the stories uh, from me at some point. Um, but I had an incredible opportunity uh, to travel the land of Israel and study the Bible in context uh, also, it was a great opportunity for me to introduce you to some of my friends. Um, so a couple weeks ago, we had Rich Ferreira, the, the general president or the general manager, but kind of functioning as president of GTI Tours. Uh, that's the tour organization we partner with to lead trips to Israel. And so um, if, if I love that man. That guy, is uh, he's really humble, and he's um, just a great leader. And then last week, uh, J.P. Sundararajan. Uh, who is the, uh, he is the global mission director for the RCA, our church family. Uh, and uh, if, if you missed last week, um, honestly, uh, JP's message last week was one of the most beautiful sermons I've ever heard and one of the most powerful sermons I've ever heard. I highly encourage you to find the audio on the website or on Facebook. I think there's the video up there yet, but um, uh, we'll, have, we'll have both of them back at some point. I love those men and uh, they're they're dear friends and men of God, and, uh, and so you got to meet them uh, while we were gone, and now you're stuck with me again. I'm back. Um, I've, I have not, this, I think, so it's been four weeks since I've preached from the stage of a church, which I think is maybe the longest, I've been doing this for 15 or 16 years, I think it's the long, other than the, the COVID season where I preached to my clothes for many of those, but um, which, I don't want to think about that either. Uh, but uh, other than that, I think it was the longest I've gone. So I, I'm a little rusty, but I'm, I'm, I'm excited to get back. And I'm excited to get back into Matthew. Uh, in particular, the story that we've been looking at, um, or the story we're going to look at this morning, is one that I've been looking at for a few weeks now. And I, uh, it's kind of been marinating on me. Um, the story we're going to look at this morning is a story of uh, one of Jesus. Actually, no, it is. It, he calls himself Jesus' best friend. Uh, it's Jesus' best friend and his cousin, a guy by the name of John the Baptist, and John the Baptist's moment of greatest suffering. Uh, and he's got this question, uh, and um, I, I've been marinating on the story, and uh, with the, the uh, tragic events of this week, um, which by the way, uh, normally we speak about these things really candidly, and uh, also as a dad of three kids, like we're, there's some things that um, we are not going to speak about this morning because I'm a dad of three kids and I know what that's like. So, um, but this has been the story that I have, uh, I have been marinating on this week as I've been putting together a sermon and then paying attention to the world and praying for 
um, all the families in Texas and just, just praying. And uh, this story has, has brought a level of peace. And at the same time, it felt honest in a way that um, I needed the Bible to be honest. And this, this story feels really, really honest. Uh, and so this morning, we're going to look at a story in which a man, Jesus' best friend, um, is going through his hour of greatest suffering. And uh, now let me just give a disclaimer before we dive in. When it, it's important that you know this for me. Uh, when it comes to suffering, I do not pretend to be an expert. Um, in many ways, uh, compared to many of you, and I know many of your stories, uh, I'm in like the first grade when it comes to suffering. Uh, I've not lost a child. I've not lost, uh, I've not lost a spouse. Um, I, I can't speak from that deep pain personally. And uh, it's important that you know that. Um, I'm not, I don't want to pretend that I'm an expert in this in a way that I'm not. Um, that said, uh, one of the things I love about the, the Bible is that the scriptures are stories of real people who go through real suffering and real, like real people in real time and place who go through real stuff. The Bible does not sugarcoat the stories. Um, often we, when we tell the stories, we'll sugarcoat them often. Um, but the, bi- the biblical writers do not sugarcoat their stories. They need you to know that, that, this, that their God met them in a place of deep pain. Uh, and that's the story uh, we're going to look at this morning. And we're going to look at a handful of stories this morning. Um, but this is John the Baptist in his darkest hour. And he has a question for Jesus. Uh, let's read the story together. Uh, Matthew 11, we'll begin in verse 1. After Jesus had finished instructing the 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in the towns of Galilee. When John, who was in prison, it's key, key line, when John, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, he sent his disciples to ask him, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? Are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? Now, this is sort of an odd question for John the Baptist. Uh, If you've been with us at all as we've been kind of learning who John the Baptist is, um, remember John the Baptist, when he's the first guy to say, oh, hey, look, when when he sees Jesus, hey, look, it's the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world. You get this sense very early in the ministry of John that John understands before anyone understands who Jesus is. He's the Savior and the Messiah. He seems to understand this before anyone else understands this. That, that line, are you the one who is to come? Are you the coming one? Was a way of saying, are you the Messiah? The, the one who was promised in the Old Testament. The one who God said he would send when his people were struggling. God is going to send a Messiah. He seemed to believe it. Now, the odd question for John is, now he's in prison. So Jesus, um, I thought you were it. I thought you were the Messiah. The one who was going like, to free us from all of the pain. But now that I'm here, I got a question for you, Jesus. Are you him? Now, it's really important that you feel that question. Um, Feel the frustration. Feel the desperation. Feel the pain of the question. Um, If it's just a a Bible story, we miss it. But if you can feel the words, then then the words are able to um, maybe come to life in you and uh, become living and active. Feel feel the, the question. Are you the one? And if so, why am I in prison, Jesus? Then, verse 4, Jesus replied, Go back and report to John what you hear and what you see. Then there's a colon. Uh, What Jesus is going to do is he's going to quote for us two Old Testament passages, kind of smash them together, uh, and he's going to make a statement. Um, 
Verse five, the blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. And then he says this really odd thing. He says, blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. Interesting. Um, Now, uh, to make sense of it, uh, the two passages Jesus is kind of smashing together are both references um, coming out of the prophet Isaiah. Uh, One is from Isaiah 35, and one is from Isaiah 61. Um, So uh, keep a finger, if if you have a paper Bible open, keep your finger in Matthew, uh, and turn to me to Isaiah 61. We'll just look at one of them. Um, But these are messianic quotes. So Isaiah the prophet is talking about what the Messiah is going to be like when the Messiah comes. Jesus is grabbing these quotes, but notice what he does with the quotes. Let me give you Isaiah 61. By the way, uh, John the Baptist would have had these quotes memorized. John the Baptist um, comes from a tradition in which these are the promises you talk about all the time. These are the songs they sang. So he would have had these memorized. Uh, Isaiah 61. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because he has, the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners. Now, go back to Matthew. Um, notice what Jesus says to John when he says, are you the one? Are you the Messiah? Jesus says, Jesus replied, go back and report to John what you hear and what you see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. And then the quote ends. And if you combine that with Isaiah 35, you find a very similar promise about the Messiah. Um, which, which part of the quote does Jesus leave out? Which line from Isaiah does Jesus leave out? Release the prisoners. Do you see what he's saying? Do you, see, do you think this is on purpose? Oh, I think so. Do you see what he's saying to John? Uh, this is why, and this, by the way, this is why Jesus then has to say, he, he subs out the release of prisoners, and then he has to say to John, blessed is the one who does not stumble or does not fall away on account of me. Here's what Jesus seems to be saying. John, I am the one. I am the one Isaiah talked about. I am the one that you've been promised that would come. I'm exactly who you believed I was. I am the Lamb of God who has come to take away the sins of the world. I am, I am, I am. And you're not gonna get out of prison. Yes, I am the one who is to come. And uh, I'm, you're not gonna get out of He leaves out the release of prisoners. He sends a very clear message to John and John seems to get it. Uh, and uh, sure enough, um, John doesn't survive that prison. Uh, does God always give us what we want? Well, we'd like him to, wouldn't we? I mean, could we agree with that? At least we'd like him to. Uh, on, on pure human terms, wouldn't we want an easily manipulatable God? At some level, like a piece of us, my sinful heart at least, kind of wants a God that I can custom, custom design and control, like a God who is really interested in all the things that I want for me. Like a God who, like I could say, okay, God, I, when I pray, I could say, okay, God, give me this, and it would happen. Uh, like a genie, a, um, a genie where if I just kind of said the right thing in the right way, then God would give me, it would rain down blessings. And yet what you have in the scriptures is time and time and time again, God says to his people, 
trust me, I'm worth listening to, and you may not get what you want in the ways you want it. Um, and so John, to John the Baptist, to John the Baptist, Jesus says, you're not going to get out of prison. Yes, I'm the one, but you're not getting out. Um, and in a few chapters, he'll be beheaded. Uh, all right, if you have a Bible, let's do a little bit of a Bible study. Um, we're going to go to Deuteronomy 32. We'll come back to the story of John the Baptist, but I want to I show you a handful of stories uh, just to, to see if there's a theme that begins to develop as we piece some stories together. Uh, Deuteronomy 32, um, we are jumping back in time about 1,500 years or so into the past um, to a man by the name of Moses. So about 1,500 years before John the Baptist, we have Moses. Uh, this is toward the end of Moses' life. On that same day, verse 48, Deuteronomy 32, verse 48. On that same day, the Lord told Moses, go up into the Abram range to Mount Nebo in Moab, across from Jericho, and view Canaan, the land I am giving the Israelites as their own possession. Now let's picture this moment. Moses, by the way, can we agree that Moses had a tough job? 40 years, as, uh, 40 years in King Pharaoh's court, and then 40 years as a shepherd in Midian, uh, in the middle of a desert. And then 40 years leading the stiff-necked, uh, scatterbrained, rebellious... I mean, they're a pain in the neck. The, the people of Israel through the desert, there are times when they openly revolt against him. They want to kick him out of leadership. There are, there's plenty of times where they beg to go back. They say things like, if only... You didn't take us out of, out of Egypt. We would be sitting around pots of meat. Uh, these Israelites are ungrateful. They, 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 uh, they, they, to a man who uh, literally risks everything, they continue to say, we wish you weren't here. We wish you wouldn't speak for us. Uh, and Moses, for 40 years, has been leading these Israelites through the desert. And now he gets them to the very edge uh, to, the, to what is known as Mount Nebo. It literally, um, those who were in Israel, you saw it. It's right on the other side of the Jordan River. It's the very edge uh, on the other side of the Jordan River. If you're standing on Mount Nebo, you are overlooking the entire land of Canaan or the, the promised land. He gets them to the very edge, and then we read this. There on that mountain that you have climbed, you will die and be gathered to your people, just as your brother Aaron died on Mount Hor and was gathered to his people. This is because both of you broke faith with me in the presence of the Israelites at the water of Meribah Kadesh in the desert of Zin, and because you did not uphold my holiness among the Israelites. Therefore, you will see the land only from a distance. You will not enter the land I am giving to the people of Israel. So 40 years, a couple of screw-ups, and you will die within view of your dream. Uh, if you have a Bible, let's go to Jeremiah. About a thousand years ahead. I know it's a very cheerful message we have this morning. <laughs> but uh, honestly, um, I, was, I would apologize for that. But if there's, this is the day, like this weekend, this holiday weekend is the weekend where at some level, um, a part of our celebration of this weekend should be going to a graveyard, right? Like that's part of how we celebrate this weekend. And so um, being honest, I think, is really, really important. And again, the Bible is very honest. Uh, Jeremiah, I'm now... Um, if you're familiar with Jeremiah, interesting book. Interesting prophet, this Jeremiah. Interesting guy. He, he receives this amazing call from God. An incredible call from God. Let me read you the call. Jeremiah 1, verse 4. 
The word of the Lord came to me saying, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Can we agree that's a pretty big deal for God to say that to somebody? Pretty big deal. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I think anyone would want to hear that. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. Can we agree? Pretty big call, prophet to the nations. So since before he was born, God says, I set you apart. I formed you in the womb. I've called you. I know you. Uh, now, sounds like it's going to be a pretty sweet deal, right? Pretty, pretty good life God's got carved out for Jeremiah. Jump ahead to chapter 20, Jeremiah chapter 20. Jeremiah has a series of complaints about how this whole thing's playing out. Remember the call. He's got a series of complaints under the, the category of you can't always get what you want. Uh, Jeremiah chapter 20. This is how it's all working out for Jeremiah. You deceived me, Lord. I was deceived. You overpowered me and prevailed. I am ridiculed all day long. Everyone mocks me. Whenever I speak, I cry out, proclaiming violence and destruction. So the word of the Lord has brought me insult and reproach all day long. But if I say I will not mention his word or speak any more in his name, well, his word is in my heart like a fire, a fire shut up in my bones. I'm weary of holding it in. Indeed, I cannot. In other words, he's saying, God, you set me up. You set me up. When I, it's like when I speak, it's bad. But when I don't speak, it's like in my heart like a fire. When I speak, it's bad. When I don't speak, it's bad. In fact, when I don't speak, it's even worse than when I do speak, which was bad. Like this is, like, remember the call. Remember this great calling he had on his life. I formed you, I called you, I knew you. Uh, but from Jer- Jeremiah's perspective, like to what? Um, look at verse 14 of the same chapter. Cursed be the day I was born. May the day my mother bore me not be blessed. Verse 18, why did I ever come out of the womb to see trouble and sorrow and to end my days in shame? How does this all work out for Jeremiah? God says, I called you, I formed you, I knew you. From Jeremiah's perspective, from his own words, to what? Mockery, insult, rejection, being misunderstood. It doesn't seem like quite the sweet deal that it was set up to be. Does God always give us what we want, how we want it? No. A couple more examples. Uh, Luke 1. Luke. Luke 1. We meet a girl, a teenager named Mary. Now, um, culturally, back then, kids got married around the age of 13 or 14. So when we meet Mary, she's uh, just a kid. She's just a kid, uh, and all of a sudden she gets this really incredible announcement given to her. Um, Luke 1, verse 30. But the angel said to her, don't be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. Is that a good thing? Yes, sweet deal number one. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. Now, the name Jesus, uh, she she would have heard it in the Hebrew language. Uh, It's Yeshua. Yeshua is two words smashed together, Yahweh and Shua, which is saves. It's it's God's salvation. Good thing? You're going to have a kid who's going to be God's salvation. Sweet deal number two. He will be great, and he'll be called Son of the Most High. Sweet deal number three, the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, four, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever, five. His kingdom, his kingdom will never end. Now, if you're 14, how sweet of a deal is this? You've just been told that you're going to mother the Messiah, 
that through your kid, like the whole, like the world is going to change because of your kid. Sweet deal, right? Pretty sweet deal. Uh, I don't know. I don't. I don't know what Mary's thinking. I know in my sin, again, in my sinful heart, what I'd be thinking if this was. I, I would be thinking, well, like I. He can heal me whenever I get sick. I don't have to worry about going like insurance anymore. Because like, if he can heal lepers and raise the dead, then if I like cut myself, I'm good. He'll just like, tss. like uh, I don't have to buy groceries again because if he can feed five thousand, he can certainly take care of five. I'm not saying Mary's saying this, but I know I, me, Tim as Mary would be thinking this. I'm um, like it. It seems like a pretty sweet deal until you start to study the life of Mary. And when you start to study the life of Mary, what you realize really quickly is the life that Mary has before her, when she says yes to this, the life that Mary has before her is filled with with heartache. Um, In Mark chapter 3, there's a story of Jesus. He's teaching in this house. And Mary comes with with Jesus' brothers because they're trying to take Jesus out because uh, they think, and I quote, he's out of his mind. They think he's out of his mind. Uh, if you continue to read, uh, in Jesus' first sermon, Luke chapter 4, Jesus' first sermon, he gives in his hometown. So imagine, like, hometown. Jesus gives his first sermon in his hometown, and the sermon ends with the town grabbing Jesus and bringing him to the edge of a cliff. And again, I quote, for they wanted to throw him off. This is, and Mary's watching all of it. Mary's watching as the crowds begin to flip on Jesus, Mary watches as Jesus is handed over to the religious authorities who then hand him over to the Roman guard. Mary watches. We are told Mary is one of the only ones who is present with Jesus at the foot of the cross. Mary watches the taunting. Mary watches the flogging. Mary watches them spit on her son. Mary watches all of it. Now, 13, 14 She says, yes, I'm in. I'm your humble servant. I'm in. Um, But does she have an idea of what this is going to, what this is going to cost her? I don't know. I don't know. Now we know, we know, um, we know how it ends, right? We know the resurrection is how it ends. But just think for a minute what Mary's getting into when she says yes. Uh, Do we see a theme in these pictures? You seen a theme? Um, John the Baptist, are you the one? Yeah, but you're going to die in prison. Uh, Moses, for 40 years of faithfulness, a couple of mistakes, but for 40 years of, of faithfulness, you're going to die in view of your dream. Uh, Jeremiah, for your faithfulness as a prophet, you're going to be rejected. You're going to be an outcast. You're going to be the least popular guy in any circle you're around. Uh, Mary, for the privilege of bearing the Messiah, you will live a life of absolute heartbreak. Now, um, I know that we like me me most of all, if we like sermons with neat, pretty red bows on the end of them where we all feel good as we leave and get kind of our God hit for the week, um, the, the problem is, is that often the Bible just doesn't leave that option open for us because life often doesn't leave that option open for us. Time and time again in the scriptures, God meets his people with the question of, will you love him? Will you trust him? even when it all falls apart? Or do you want a God, will you only follow a God when everything works out exactly how we want it to work out? Uh, and as soon as it flips a little bit, well, we, I'll trade you in for another God, thank you very much. Do, will we worship God on his terms? 
Um, okay, let's go to Matthew 16. One more, just one more. And then we'll try to make some sense. Um, now, uh, we'll look at this passage a bit more deeply in a few months, um, but I, I just want, I want you to see how honest Jesus is with his disciples. I just need you to see how honest, because I think sometimes we get the high gloss images of faith and we can miss, Jesus actually was brutally honest with his disciples. Um, this is a story of uh, Jesus and his disciples. Now, um, can we agree that the disciples are not particularly the brightest? Are you getting that sense by now? Um, it actually makes me reassured knowing that these are the guys Jesus trusts with the entire world. Like if, if it would be all of the message, right? That Jesus trusts these guys. If he trusts these guys, then I think you and I are gonna be okay, right? Like you and I are okay. These guys are uh, making mistake after mistake. Uh, they're questioning who Jesus is. One of the things that are the most um, unsure about is exactly like, okay, Jesus, who are you? And uh, by the time we get to Matthew 16, right in the middle of Jesus' ministry, Jesus is going to ask them the question, who do people think that I am? So who, who do people think I am? And uh, they respond with, uh, well, some say you're John the Baptist. He'd just been beheaded. So like John the Baptist come back from the dead. Some people think you're Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Some people think you're Elijah. And then Jesus turns to them and says, okay, well, who do you think I am? And it's Peter that says, oh, I'll tell you who you are. You're the Messiah. You're the son of the living God. You're the one we've been waiting for. Like it's like coin drops in the slot. Jesus, I know exactly who you are. After seeing the miracles, after seeing like the healings, after seeing you teach, I know exactly who you are, Jesus. You're the Messiah. And Jesus then says, uh, verse well, Jesus, said, Jesus says, you're right, and renames Peter. And then we read this in verse 21. The very next thing, after they understand who Jesus is, from that time on, not before then, not before then, from that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be rule, raised to life. Now listen, in the Messiah rule book, this is not how the, the story is supposed to end. Messiahs are not supposed to suffer. Uh, and, and certainly in the Jewish conception of Messiah, they've had thousands of years to think about who the Messiah was going to be. And so like this whole theology of who the Messiah was going to be raised up. Some of it in line with the prophets. A lot of times they were just kind of making things up. But they had an understanding. Essentially, when the Messiah came, the Messiah was going to take care of the Rome problem. The Messiah was supposed to kind of kick Roman tushy all over the place, right? That, that was the Messiah. That's the job. And Jesus is now saying, oh no, now that you know who I am, now that you understand I'm the Messiah, guess what's true for me? They're gonna kill me. It's actually Peter who then says, no, 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 no. They're not gonna, no, Jesus. And Jesus has to say, don't you get it? Or in his words, get behind me, Satan. Whatever translation you prefer. Like, you gotta understand, like, this is what it costs First thing they see is, first thing he needs them to see is who he is. You're the Messiah. Then the very next thing is, here's what's true for the Messiah. He's going to suffer, I'm going to suffer, and I'm going to die. And then the very next thing, check this out. Uh, verse 24. Then Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. Okay, friends, I, it is impossible to overstate. It is impossible to overstate what this would have done in the earliest followers. 
the only people who took up a cross in the first century were who? Criminals. Criminals are terrorists, right? The only people who took up a cross were criminals or terrorists. If you took up a cross, here's what this meant for you. Your family was dead to you. Your friends were dead to you. You were dead to the world. You were branded either a criminal or a revolutionary or a terrorist or all three, and you were, you were essentially the shame of the world. This is why the earliest Christians would say it's somehow through the shame of the cross that God puts his message forward to the world. The cross was, a, I know we, we wear it as jewelry. We, the cross was a picture of shame. First thing Jesus needs them to see is this is who I am. Once they understand who he is, the very next thing is And here's what that's going to mean. They're going to kill me. And if you follow me, they're going to kill you too. Um, Does God always give us what we want? Uh, Hard message to stomach in some ways, isn't it, if we're honest? Uh, And yet I think, um, as I sat with this this week, uh, I I think that this is, there's an honesty to it that I, uh, I crave out of Christians and out of the church in general. There's an honesty to it. Uh, there, um, some, of, some of you relate in, in ways that um, you're feeling here, right? Maybe you relate with Jeremiah. Uh, maybe right now there's a bit of like, okay, God, I'm trying to obey you. I am trying to follow you. And the more I try to follow you, the more the other kids at school pick on me. The more I try to follow you, the more I, I, I don't get invited to the parties, God, I'm trying to do it, but I'm, I'm trying, and yet the harder I try, it's like my family's rejected me, my friends are rejecting me, and you kind of want to say what Jeremiah said, right? Like, God, you deceived me. I didn't know that that's what I was going to get into, and I was told that if I say the prayer, my life was going to be happy and good, but I said the prayer, and now my life is filled with this. God, you deceived me. You set me up. Um, or maybe you feel a bit like Mary, and uh, it's like you're grieving um, over a child, and it uh, just didn't work out the way you were thinking. Just didn't work out the way you were thinking. And, um, and it's hard to name that out loud. It's hard to speak that. Or maybe for you, you can't have children. And uh, just the weight of that just sits on you. Um, or maybe uh, you feel a bit like Moses and you're working this horrible job. You just hate it. Go to work every day, punch the clock. And, uh, and the whole thing is because maybe someday I get to retire. There's a promised land in sight somewhere. And yet every day I'm a cog in the wheel. I'm underappreciated. I'm not valued. And, uh, and then you finally get to the end of your dream and uh, 2008 recession hits, uh, global pandemic hits. And now you realize I got to start over. Maybe in some small way, you feel a bit like Jesus. There is a cross before you that feels too big to bear. A diagnosis, a loved one who's going through a divorce, um, a, a sickness in a child, some, something before you feels, this is too much for me. God, you can do anything. Would you take it? That, that was his prayer. Would you, would you take it? And the question we are left with is, what if it doesn't work out? What if it doesn't work? What if the, the dream you once had just doesn't come true the way you've been dreaming it would? What if the, the girl you loved leaves you? What if the, um, <clears throat> the marriage crumbles? What if the loneliness is devastating? What if the career doesn't pan out? What if the child continues to stray further and further from the way you raised them? 
it's important that people of faith are honest about this stuff. What happens when it doesn't work out? Do we, do we just turn our back on it all in that moment and say, God, I'm done? Like, uh, again, the church can give overly glossy images to really hard problems of evil and suffering and sin. Without getting into specifics, because I... Um, these are conversations parents can have with kids, but I, uh, I found myself on Wednesday. Um, so my wife works Wednesdays and Fridays, and so I get to drop off my kids to school and do the whole like minivan thing. Uh, and <clears throat> found myself on Wednesday um, dropping my, kids, my kiddos off at school, and <clears throat> my uh, daughter said to me as she was leaving, my son usually is too cool to say anything. He just kind of gets out of the car. He doesn't talk to me. Or, like, he, I try to make him give me a hug periodically in front of people because it's fun. Um, but uh, my daughter will always say, bye, Daddy, I love you. That's what she says every day. And so uh, she said, bye, Daddy, I love you. And, uh, and then she gets out. I go to drop my other daughter off um, at the babysitter, my youngest. And uh, I, um, I don't actually, I don't cry that easy. I wish I, I wish I, they're coming, tears are coming quicker. And I don't know if I'm just emotionally raw because of Israel and kind of spiritually open. I don't know, but um, I found myself, I had to pull the car over, and I just wept on Wednesday. Um, I, I just kept replaying that, bye, Daddy, I love you, bye, Daddy, I love you, in my head, and I just wept. And uh, I have heard story after story of others of you who had a very similar experience. Um, it's important that we understand that the Bible is honest with that. You see why this, this story of John the Baptist is so weirdly, in a, in a weird, weird way, helpful? It's like John had all these expectations of who Jesus, who the Messiah was going to be, and, it's, um, and now he's not so sure. John wants a simple answer. He wants a simple answer to the evil before him, and yet what you find is that there is no simple answer. I, uh, I would say that any system that offers overly simplistic answers to deeply complex problems of evil, not only misses the point, but it runs the risk of actually diminishing the suffering someone's feeling. Uh, any system that's overly black and white, like good people of faith have this experience and bad people have this, any system that's over, uh, that offers overly simplistic answers to very complex problems of evil and suffering run the risk of deeper, deepening the suffering. Think about the dilemma Jesus, is, Jesus has before him. If Jesus gets John the Baptist out of prison, if he does that, they're gonna kill him too. And he's not ready to, to his, he's gotta raise up these disciples who will take the message out. They're not ready yet. They don't get it yet. Matthew 16 hasn't happened yet. They've not declared who he is. They have no idea. If he gets John out of prison, if he doesn't get John out of prison, John the Baptist, his whole conception of Messiah is... But if he gets him out of prison, his disciples aren't ready yet, and they'll go for him. Do you see the dilemma? If he just were to wave the magic God wand and set John the Baptist free from prison, if he just waved the God wand, he would ruin the whole trajectory of the future. Jesus understands the weight of it. And if you think it's easy for Jesus to do, keep reading the story. Jesus will then leave and he'll hear the crowd behind him talking about what he just said to John and he'll snap on the room and say, what did you expect to see from John? Don't you understand? His faith is deeper than all your faith. 
What'd you expect to see a reed in the, in the desert snap? Like, who did you expect John to be? This is his friend. Um, but what Jesus understands is some situations are complex. Two observations. <clears throat> Two observations. Um, first, while we pray for circumstances to change, and we should pray that, it's an important prayer to pray. Um, it's important that we're honest with God, always, always. It's also important to recognize that they may not. Uh, this side of heaven, things may not work out. And we, like John and Jeremiah and Mary and Moses, we have to be honest about that. Here is the promise, though. Oh, we cannot prom- I cannot promise, like, okay, if you pray this prayer in this way and if you have this much faith, right? There are people that will make that promise to you that if you only had more faith, then God will give you what you want and just, like, just name it and claim it. Like, I cannot promise you that because the, like, the scriptures do not promise that. What I can promise you and what the biblical writers will testify to again and again and again is that in the middle of your storms, in the middle of your emotional deserts, God is with you in them. Cannot guarantee the outcome we want, but we can guarantee that God does not abandon us in the storms. He doesn't leave us in the storms. Um, uh, so the, our last night of Israel, uh, before we all traveled and um, did all that, uh, we had this uh, dinner. On, uh, it's called the Panorama Hotel. It overlooks the entire city of Jerusalem. It's an incredible place. Um, but we were sharing stories with each other, and uh, um, someone shared a story that I immediately wrote it down, and um, she actually had a line that she shared. She said, I came to Israel expecting to find God in the living water, but what I've discovered is I have found God in the desert. I think what we discover is that God meets us in the difficult situations. Um, uh, Moses will say, like a father carries a son, so too does God carry us. There are moments where as bad as it hurts me to see my kids hurt, there is a moment where I get to carry my child and I get to whisper to my child, I love you. Um, in the hard moments of life, the complex moments of life, uh, the first thing I, I need you to know is that God doesn't abandon you in it. Second thing, last thing. Um, is that uh, just like God doesn't abandon us in it, we cannot abandon each other in it. We need each other in it. Um, uh, I, so I think back to Jesus on the cross. You know, the, of all the things Jesus could say on the cross, like he's got a lot he could say, right? He could say, how dare you? I'm, I'm gonna show you. Like he's a lot he could have said. Um, but on the cross, one of the seven last words Jesus says from the cross is he looks down at Mary And in John 19, he says, when Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved, John, standing nearby, he said to her, woman, here's your son. And to the disciple, here's your mother. Take care of mom. And then it says this, from that time on, the disciple took her into his home. Isn't that beautiful? The last thing Jesus does is he makes sure they have community. We need each other. God does not abandon us. We cannot abandon each other in the moments of suffering. Um, there's a passage that has been, uh, for whatever reason, it keeps coming back. You ever have those passages when you're doing devotions and it's like, it keeps coming back. It's like a footnote in another passage and you go there and it's like, that passage again. And so I've been sitting with this passage for a while and um, I thought maybe the reason it's coming back is because I'm supposed to share it with you. So let me read a passage out of uh, 2 Corinthians. If you want to turn there, it's um, right after 
First Corinthians, yeah. Second Corinthians, that's, that's dad jokes meets Bible jokes, which is the worst kind of jokes. Um, Second Corinthians chapter six, this is Paul speaking, the apostle Paul. He says, we put no stumbling block in anyone's path so that our ministry will not be discredited. Rather, as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way in great endurance in troubles and hardships and distresses, in beatings, imprisonments and riots and hard work in sleepless nights and hunger, in purity, understanding, patience and kindness, in the Holy Spirit and in sincere love, in truthful speech and in the power of God, with weapons of righteousness in the right hand and in the left, through glory and dishonor, bad report and good report, genuine yet regarded as imposters, known yet regarded as unknown, dying and yet we live on, beaten and yet not killed, sorrowful yet always rejoicing, poor yet making many rich, having nothing and yet possessing everything. John, uh, Paul is just giving a litany of, they beat me, they rejected me, they mocked me, and then he says this. We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians, and opened wide our hearts to you, We are not withholding our affection from you, but you are withholding yours from us. As a fair exchange, I speak to you as to my children. Open wide your hearts also. I'm convinced that what the world needs now, what our world needs, what our world needs now is not another sound bite. It's not another short, concise. This is what this is how we fix all the problems of the world. What we, what we need now is to not tear each other apart based on how we think we need to respond to crises. Uh, and we do need to, like, to discuss it. We do need to debate it. We do need to respond. But what the world needs now is a Christian church. I love the language of Paul. Paul talks about the church and his language for the early church is, you are going to be a new humanity. Let's name it. Our humanity is badly broken. What does it mean to embody a new humanity? Paul says, at some level, it begins with looking for God in the middle of your suffering. And then your job, my job, is to open wide our hearts also. I have seen life change. I'll just explain to somebody in the back um, that there's something that happens on any trip I've ever gone on, uh, but especially this last trip, it happened. Um, There's a moment in the trip where we're teaching Bible and we're hiking. And then there's a moment where somebody will share a story and it's at that moment that will turn the entire thing, always, right? You've been in a Bible study maybe where this has happened. Like you're having a Bible study, you're, you're talking about eschatology or whatever you're talking about. And then all of a sudden, somebody in the room will say, I'm lonely. And all of a sudden, they open up their heart and it's like the entire room shifts. Something powerful happens when you see, when I see you in my suffering, Um, I would say right now, the Christian church, our invitation in this world is to be, to embody the new humanity who breaks ourselves open and pours ourselves out and says, world, we are here. We will not let you suffer alone. We will not let you walk this journey alone. Jesus from the cross, the last thing is, mom, here's your new son. He'll take care of you. John, take care of my mom. And then from that time on, he took her into his home. We can embody that. Um, let's have a word of prayer. Lord, um, we are thankful. I am thankful that uh, the scriptures you gave us are not this neat and tidy, red-bowed, uh, ign- ign- 
ignorance of all the reality of pain and brokenness and sin and evil that we all experience. Lord, I am so grateful that you chose to collect these stories of guys like Jeremiah who uh, cannot envision a future. Um, Lord, I am thankful that you include stories like the story of Elijah who has an anxious breakdown, a meltdown. Lord, I am thankful that you include stories like Moses, uh, a, a man of great faith who gets to the end of his life uh, and this side of heaven doesn't see the promised land. Uh, Lord, we are grateful that you are honest about uh, how sin and evil work in this world. And beyond that, Lord, we are so thankful that what you promise us is your presence. Lord, I'm grateful for the, the language of the book of Hebrews that says, we do not have an uncompassionate high priest. Lord, we thank you that you're a compassionate priest who understands who we are. Um, and so Jesus, I pray for every um, parent in this room who uh, this last week has been heartbreaking. Uh, Lord, would you bring them peace? Lord, I pray for every student in this room who uh, life is hard. Lord, I pray for them. Lord, we lift up every, uh, every family in this room who the world keeps moving on. And uh, for them, a, um, a loved one went off to uh, serve the nation and didn't come home. And uh, as people um, grill burgers and gather around campfires, Lord, I, uh, we lift up all those who sit around a table with one less person and is grieving. Lord, would you um, bring peace to them? Uh, Jesus, we love you and we thank you. Uh, and we pray this in your name. And everybody said, would you please stand As we've said so many times before, we just want to say thanks for spending a little time with us. For more information about how you can become a part of the South Harbor Church community, visit us on the web at www.southharbor.org. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at South Harbor Church. And on Sundays at 10 a.m., you can find our services streamed live on our Facebook page. And so once again, from all of us here at South Harbor Church and the Harbor Churches, we want to wish you a blessed week.